What's up, guys? Welcome back to a brand new episode of Listen to Me Speak. We are on season two, episode 22. And although I've only been gone for a week, it feels so much longer than that. But honestly, I had a lot going on. I had my birthday. I celebrated my birthday last Tuesday. My sister graduated. I had work. So there was a whole lot of things going on. And I was like, you know what? I'll just take a week off. And honestly, there wasn't a whole lot to talk about that week. So I was like, I'll just combine what I had planned for um, that week's episode with this week's episode. And it'll be better off in the long run because you'll get a little bit of a longer episode than you would have if I had dropped last week. But thank you guys for being so patient and understanding. And thank you to those of you who supported and listened and shared the last episode I dropped on your social medias. I really, really appreciate it. You know, like I say all the time, I put in a lot of effort into these episodes. So getting good feedback and, and seeing, you know, a lot of people listening to each episode makes me feel really, really good. I really, really appreciate it. So without wasting any more time, let's get right into this episode. So I have to start off by talking about the new BT TV show. It's called The Encore. And so if you haven't heard of the show yet, I think there's only been two episodes so far. I'm actually behind on last week's episode. But if you don't know, this show is pretty much about combining um, singers from previous girl groups that had falling outs with the groups or the group is disbanded or they didn't reach their potential as a group. It's about taking certain members from several groups and putting them together. We have Aubrey O'Day from Danny Kane. We have Keely Williams from the Cheetah Girls and 3LW. We have, um, I think, did I mention the two girls from Cherish? So it's a whole lot of these um, former girl group singers coming together to combine one big super group. And I guess the show is going to take us through the process of forming the group and picking the songs and writing the songs and recording them. And of course, it's reality TV. And of course, there is drama. And let me be real with you. The twins from Cherish are awful human beings. I didn't know much about them personally. I just liked a couple of their songs when they were in the group together. I had no knowledge of Either of them, I didn't even realize that they were still active songwriters. But of course, the episode begins with them bragging about, oh, we had we wrote a song on Justin Bieber's album and, and on this person's album. And da, da, da. They're, they're pretty much the two women in the group that think that they're better than everybody else. And I immediately didn't like them within the first 20 minutes of the show. Um, Keely came on and decided right from the get-go that she wasn't even going to really be participating in the group and that she just wanted to be more of like a creative director I didn't think that Keely had any experience being a creative director I don't think she really does so that looks like that's going to be a hot mess and of course Aubrey O'Day has hardly changed at all I think it's hilarious that she manages to find herself on a reality tv show every couple of years it doesn't matter what the reality tv show is about she finds a way to fit in and make it work it's hilarious and it's just sad that she spends and wastes her time doing dumb shit or things that aren't really helpful for her and her career even wasting her time being on reality tv i wasn't a huge huge fan of danny kane but from what i remember of them i don't think aubrey o'day was awful i think she was a decent singer she could dance okay like i'm pretty sure she could put on a, a, a decent performance so it's just it's just a shame that she would rather be 
wasting her time and energy creating drama on reality TV instead of really putting that effort into her music. I know she had a group going called Dumb Blonde with one of the other singers from Danny Kane for a while, and I think they released like maybe two or three projects together. I think they even did a song or an EP with... um. I think her name is Dawn from Danity Kane as well. I don't know what happened. I, I went on Aubrey O'Day's page. I went on the other singer who was in Dumbledore's page, and she hasn't really been active since 2019. So I don't know if there was a falling out there. I assume so because Aubrey O'Day is back on reality television in this girl group. And, you know, I, I really didn't like how manipulative and, and divisive she was being on the show. So I could see that probably becoming a, an even bigger problem on that show. I will say, though, that all of this drama makes for good reality TV, so I can say what I want. Anybody can critique it and say what they want, but we're watching for a reason and we're watching to see shit go down. So I'm pretty sure this uh, new show is going to be really good. I know it was inspired by an old pilot that Keely Williams and one of the chicks from Destiny's Child she was only in the group for like a hot minute. She couldn't really sing. So the pilot was inspired. I think this show is called The Encore. So The Encore was inspired by that pilot. And so what happened was after Naturi went on the reel and her and Adrian kind of ha rehashed their past issues and, you know, Adrian apologized to her and, you know, the old 3LW beef had resurfaced. Keely Williams, I believe, went on her Instagram live and was like, ranting about Adrian and about Naturi and, and, and trying to, I guess, paint a better picture of herself because Keely really did look like the bad guy. And I believe that. You know, not everybody can be wrong. Raven Simone has said time and time again about what kind of person Keely was and, and their issues on the set of The Cheetah Girls. So when you're having these issues in multiple girl groups, not everybody can be lying. So anyway, after that beef had kind of been rehashed, then that pilot of Keely and the chick from Destiny's Child going at it on a failed pilot resurfaced online and it went viral. And enough people were really saying, hey, like we would we would have really loved to watch that reality TV show. So I guess from that, BET got together and decided to create a show that was kind of loosely inspired by that pilot. Honestly, I don't think the encore would have been as good as that pilot would have been because that just looked straight up messy and that makes for good reality television but the encore is good so far because of all the drama so we'll see how that show ends up playing out tyler perry a couple of weeks ago i think at this point he had went on twitter or not even just twitter on social media period and had talked about potentially making a third why did i get married movie a lot of the reception was mixed some people like myself were you know saying there should be a third movie and then there are a lot of people who were against him making a third movie i after watching why did i get married two by the time it ended i'm like you know what i really wouldn't have been mad if he had made a third movie because I, I felt like something was missing and i feel like certain movie series they need it needs to be a trilogy like they need a third movie to finish telling the story and I really wouldn't be mad at a third um why did I get married movie the only problem with that is that Tyler Perry created a spin-off show based off of one of the couples I Marcus and I'm I'm blanking on the wife's name but you know who she is she was the crazy loud one and I think the show was called for better or for worse and it lasted for eight seasons so really I never watched the show, but I know it was popular, and I feel like, all right, you have eight seasons of a show, there, sh there probably really isn't much of a story to tell with them anymore. I mean, they were really the comic relief of that movie, so you could always bring them back, because 
they were that couple where it's like they just love to argue like they have real problems and their marriage is really unhealthy but you know that they're not going to end up divorced they're going to stay together and because they love to argue so really I guess even though we've had eight seasons of stories revolving around them I'm sure not everybody including myself has watched that show so we are completely out of the loop with their story it wouldn't hurt to bring them back because they were never really the main focus of the movie but it would be interesting to kind of see how Janet's character goes on now that her husband has died or I don't think they were divorced when he died yet I think they were in the process seeing who she moves on with obviously at the end of the second movie um Dwayne The Rock Johnson he makes like a very brief cameo he's a big movie star today so it's quite obvious that he's not going to come back for the third movie and her character probably didn't really end up with his character for long but it'll be interesting to kind of see where they pick up it'll be interesting to hear or see how Tyler Perry's character and Sharon I believe his wife's name was how they're doing in the third movie I'm really really not against it I think that the why did I get married movie series kind kind of needs a third one and I definitely watch it I know Tyler Perry has decided to bring back Medea for multiple projects one project that I talked about a while ago was for Showtime the prequel kind of series to see how Medea got her start and I guess um, the show is centered around like a young version of Medea and then I believe he's doing a new Medea movie for Netflix so it seems like he's reviving a lot of projects and so I'm not surprised that he's thinking or toying with the idea of doing a why did I get married movie the only thing is would Janet come back for a third one who knows who knows if other cast members would come back either whether it's because they don't want to do a third movie or if it's because they're bound to other projects and stuff like that so but I would be here for it I know my Nana said that it's not needed but um it'd be interesting to kind of see where the characters are up to now moving on from Tyler Perry I did want to talk about Batwoman really quick because I feel like the show is really picking up now Batwoman has suffered a lot of losses because of Ruby Rose leaving the show and forcing the writers to kind of restructure Batwoman and figure out what new storylines they were going to create on such short notice and I feel like now it's really picking up steam. Spoiler alert for those of you who may watch Batwoman who aren't caught up yet but you know Sophie finally left the crows. The crows are finally shutting down for good. Like I feel like Batwoman is really in a place where it's a really like I said before it's it's really come to a turning point in the story because the characters are starting to evolve and grow and really get to know themselves as people Luke has already been announced to be coming Batwing his suit is so cool I'm a little bitter that his suit is better than Batwoman's but I feel like Luke has also been through a huge change in his life getting shot almost dying and kind of really having to question his morals and, and figure out I guess what he wants to be in the world and so I was caught off guard because I don't know a whole bunch about the Batwoman universe or even Batman for that matter I had no idea that Luke in the comics is actually becomes Batwing and it's a fun fact that the actor who's playing Luke is actually writing a Batwing comic at the moment so it's kind of like he gets to play him on TV and also gets to write about him which is super cool but I had no idea that that was a part of the storyline in the comics I, I really should start reading them and so his suit looks really really cool and it'll be interesting to see him and 
Ryan fight alongside each other and how that dynamic is going to work because Luke is the tech guy. You don't really picture him being in the field and fighting the bad guys. So I'm now starting to wonder who's going to take over for him. I'm getting the feeling that it may be Sophie because like I said, Sophie has now left the crows. She's really not doing anything. She has to find her new purpose in life. She has to figure out what she wants to do, which is why I said that this is such a big turning point in the show at the moment. So I could see her kind of stepping into the role, into the role, my, my fault, I can't speak today. I could see um, Sophie stepping into the tech role that Lucas had or Luke had. And it can't really be Mary because Mary is more of the, she wants to be a doctor. She was running her own, you know, illegal but private practice where she was, you know, fixing up and healing a lot of the people who were being wounded by whatever big bad that Batwoman was fighting. So I can't really see her stepping into that role because she's more of the, I want to heal people, I want to fix people, I want to be a doctor type. So I can see Sophie trying to step into that role, even though it doesn't really seem like it would be Sophie's thing either. Because Sophie's more of the, I want to like fight in the battle and stuff like that. Honestly, it would make more sense for Sophie to kind of be Batwoman, Swingwoman instead of Luke. But it will be interesting to see how he takes on that role and how he gets there because so far we've seen pictures and stills of the costume but it hasn't been introduced into the actual storyline yet right now we're still focused on Kate um still kind of being alive at the moment so we haven't really gotten there with Batwing but we're a little bit closer so it'll be interesting to see how that's set up and I would say that season two right now is better than Season one, I think that the writers are doing a really good job with creating and coming up with engaging and interesting storylines. So I can't wait to see how the rest of the season plays out. I kind of think next week, though, is the finale. So maybe we won't really see Batwing in action until next season. But thankfully, the CW renewed Batwoman and is really giving it a shot. And I think that that will be a smart choice in the end for them because I really do believe in networks giving these shows these new shows more of a fighting chance because sometimes a show needs a season or two to really develop and get interesting rather than just being so quick to cancel them so i can't wait to see how batwoman progresses in season three speaking of quick and swift cancellations i was shocked that nbc decided to cancel both manifest and Zoe's playlist. Now, I haven't watched either show, but it was there they were two shows that I was interested in eventually getting into because I thought that their plots were really interesting. And I was shocked that NBC decided to cancel them because I felt like at least from social media and the uh, on from the Twitter standpoint, it seemed like a lot of people were engaged with those shows. I really feel like the network or the distributor or whoever's involved didn't really give either show a fighting chance or really tried super hard to find a new home for the show. Netflix just announced that they decided that they weren't going to save Manifest for a fourth season, which was crazy to me because a few months ago they added the show onto their streaming platform and you know now Netflix does this thing where it tells you what the top 10 films and shows are for the streaming service and I believe that Manifest was on there for a good while and a lot of people were engaged with the show so I definitely think it was a mistake on Netflix's part of not picking up the show. I, I do feel like they didn't try to find it another home. People mentioned that you know Hulu may not have even been in the race because maybe that they don't have the budget to house a show like Manifest. I'm, I'm, I don't know much about the show other than like a vague plot, but I do imagine it's probably expensive to film and maybe Hulu doesn't have as big of a budget as Netflix does. 
but I do I do think that they should have tried harder. I don't think Zoe's playlist is officially down for the count. I know they said that Manifest is officially done. No other place was going to house the show for a fourth season. It's over. Um, but I do, I do wish that, at least for the fans of the show, that they did bring it on for at least an additional few episodes just so that the writers could close out the storyline because there's nothing worse than really enjoying a show and then it gets canceled on a cliffhanger. That's the worst. Zoe's playlist, I think, at this point still has a fighting chance. I won't be surprised if they get picked up by somebody else. Again, their plot was really, really interesting as well, and it was a show that when it first aired, I always meant to get into, and I just never got the chance to. So it, I was shocked to hear about both cancellations, and it seems like NBC has been really, really getting it wrong lately. I did also want to talk about Loki, and I'm really, I was really sitting and thinking about it, I'm like, I don't feel like there's much I can really say because I'm going to be honest, that show is really confusing me. I am so lost. I just watched the second episode last night. I'm so lost on what's been going on with the show. I can pick up with the storyline a little bit, which is that, you know, at the, in, at the end of Endgame, I believe it was towards the end of the movie, that's when the superheroes were going back and they were making sure that any changes they may have create that may have been created from Thanos was kind of reset and fixed. And so during one of the moments in time that they went back to, Loki had actually, I think it was the Tesseract, he stole it when Tony dropped it and disappeared. And so Loki pretty much picks up from that point because, spoiler alert, Loki dies right in the beginning of, I believe, ooh, it was the beginning of Infinity War because Endgame takes place after Thanos did what he did. So he dies right in the beginning of Infinity War. So when they decided to make a show so, uh, based off of Loki, I'm like, well, is it like a prequel of sorts before um, he's introduced in Thor or is it after? And then it was like, okay, well, if it's after Infinity War, then they have to explain how he's still alive. And of course, they used the Tesseract and um, time travel essentially to explain how he was able to why he's still alive at this point and I remember I think it's Kevin Feige and some of the other executive producers of Marvel saying that Loki was an important series to watch because it's really going to have an effect in the movies so if you don't watch it you'll be kind of lost and from the trailer I really wasn't interested in the series I'm really only watching it because I want to make sure that I understand what's going on when I see you know, the next Doctor Strange movie and things coming up about that. And it's so clear, even from the first two episodes, that this show really is going to tie into Doctor Strange because we're already playing with, with different timelines and the multiverse and things like that. So when Loki took the Tesseract, he pretty much created a branch off of the normal, or I think they call it the standard or the solid or the main timeline. And so it was the TVA's job to reset the timeline back to normal so that, I guess, multiple timelines don't coexist at once because it's dangerous. So that's pretty much all I can really grasp, grasp so far of the show. I won't go into too many details because I'm sure some of you may have not seen the first or the second episode yet. And really, there's not much else I can say because like I told you guys, I'm confused while watching the show. 
But because we're dealing with different timelines and, and time travel and things like that, and Doctor Strange is like the father of time, he's the protector of time, it makes sense that you have to watch Loki to kind of see what's going on. Because I do believe by the end of this season, it's going to tie into what we're going to see in Doctor Strange. And we've already seen that with WandaVision. So to me, WandaVision and this Loki series is probably going to both be essential to watching Doctor Strange, and I won't be surprised if Loki makes his way into that movie as well. So that wraps up my TV and movie segment, and of course I have to get right into music, my favorite topic to talk about. So I'm going to start off by talking about Ed Sheeran, because he announced that he's releasing a new single on June 25th called Bad Habits. The cover art for the single is already out. It looks kind of weird. I feel like he's kind of biting off of the weekend with his suit and this kind and his like um, bruises and bandages. It's kind of like how the weekend started off his after hours era. So I, I see some inspiration there. Ed Sheeran has been gone for quite a bit. I, I really don't know what the music is going to sound like. There was a little snippet of Bad Habits that was released. I don't remember much about it. I think it was released maybe a week ago. And it's most likely got an accompanying music video. I don't know what sound Ed Sheeran is going to head into with this era. I don't know if he's going to follow behind a lot of his pop star peers and kind of lead into an 80s sound and, and things like that. Who knows? As Overrated as Ed Sheeran can come off and be sometimes, as overplayed as, as his music can be on the radio, he really does create good music, so I don't really foresee this upcoming album being bad. I, I don't know how this single is going to be, but sometimes I have to learn not to judge a whole body of work by the lead single, even though the lead single is supposed to reflect the album. Sometimes these labels, these artists, these teams, they don't pick the right singles. An album can be great, but they're not choosing singles that reflect it. So we'll see how Bad Habits ends up being. I think a lot of artists that are in Ed Sheeran's situation where they had a really highly successful 2010s run, a lot of them don't know how to transition into the 2020s, especially if they've been gone for a little while. I think Ed Sheeran's last project was in 2019, but his last album was in 2017 with Division. So it has been a while. So we'll see how he's able to kind of transition into what music is today. I think Ed Sheeran is talented enough that he really shouldn't be focusing on, on what the sounds and trends are. He can kind of do his own thing. He's got a big fan base. He's a popular artist. Whatever he puts out is going to sell well. So I think at this point in Ed Sheeran's career, he should really just be focused on doing what he wants to do. So we'll see how good of a single Bad Habits ends up being this week. There were a lot of album anniversaries that have passed over the couple of weeks. We had the five-year anniversary of Nick Jonas's Last Year Was Complicated album, his best body of work. I think that that album kind of showed the world that Nick Jonas was a solid solo artist and that he was capable of finally shedding that Disney image and putting out serious adult music that people could relate to. I think that album showed, it showcased that this is an older Nick Jonas and also for the fans like myself who have been listening to the Jonas Brothers since I was a kid and now we're all adults and we're kind of just growing with him and he's making music that now reflects real life and our life rather than some kind of Disney pop watered down version of music that he was probably forced to do in that band there are so many great songs on that album 
I know a lot of people weren't able to separate Last Year Was Complicated from his newer album, Spaceman. And while I do agree that Last Year Was Complicated is a much better album than Spaceman, I think a lot of people, also on the, on the other side of things, I think a lot of people wanted more of a direct follow-up from Last Year Was Complicated with music that sounded like the music on that album, and Spaceman was a whole, it went completely left. It was more 80s-inspired pop music than it was more of the pop R&B mix that Nick Jonas did so successfully on that album. So I think a lot of people couldn't see past that, and that's why they couldn't really enjoy Spaceman, but I enjoy both albums. I think they're both good. But if you're expecting Nick Jonas to live up to last year was complicated or to create an album just like that, you're probably not really going to get that because last year was complicated, was so specific and tailored to what he was going through at the time, which was his breakup with Olivia Copel at the time. I think that's how you pronounce her name. So obviously he's a happily married man. You're not going to get an album like, like last year was complicated anymore. He's not going to make a breakup album. He's making married man music and that's what Spaceman was. But I don't think there was anything wrong with Spaceman. It was just different. But that's an album that will never get old to me. I think that at this point we could say that it's not only one of the best albums of the 2010s, but also one of the best albums of that year. And I believe it was released in 2016. And there were a lot of great albums. I don't know what was in the water in 2016, but there was a lot of great music that came out of that year. And last year was complicated was one of those. There was also the 18 year anniversary of Beyonce's debut solo album, Dangerously in Love. And that album is always going to hold a special place, not only because it's a great album, but because this was the start of complete magic. You know, Beyonce has put out so many life-changing and culture-shifting albums, and Dangerously in Love really was the start of that. And, I, and there are not a lot of artists that are putting out really great debut albums in the way that Beyonce did with Dangerously, Dangerously in Love. Sorry, again, I can't speak today. And so I, I feel like the art of the debut album is kind of lost these days because a lot of artists will spend a lot of time putting out mixtapes and projects and a bunch of Lucy singles before ever getting to a debut album. Five years will go by and then they're finally putting out a debut album and it's just not good because they wasted all of that time and energy and hunger into these projects. By the time you get to the debut album, it's just a watered down version of greater projects they put out before so I think the art of a really strong and solid debut album doesn't really exist today because of how music is formed but Dangerously in Love was is definitely one of those classic debut albums that you listen back to it and you get the same kind of feelings you got the very first time you heard it or you know younger Beyonce fans who haven't heard it yet who decide to finally go and listen to it they're gonna feel the same feelings that we felt listening to it for the first time so Beyonce's debut solo album is definitely an important one and though it's not number one on my list it's definitely in my top five. Ten years ago Drake also dropped Marvin's Room which was the lead single from his classic album Take Care and I don't care what anybody says there's the debate of oh Drake doesn't have a classic album if we can all agree on one thing, I think most of us can agree that Take Care is a classic album. It definitely shifted the culture. And Marvin's Room, even releasing a song like Marvin's Room, like a slow, emotional type of record as a lead single for an album from a mainstream artist is unheard of. At that time, you don't, re you don't release songs like Marvin's Room 
as a single, let alone a lead single. Marvin's Room, when you listen to it, it's like one of those, oh, this should have been a deep cut. But he pushed it as a lead single, and not only did it do well, but it inspired a whole bunch of remixes of the song, from Chris Brown to JoJo. Like, Marvin's Room had the music scene in a chokehold. Everybody and their mom was doing a remix to that record, and I think the rest was history. I think... If I could go back in time when I first listened to Marvin's Room when it dropped, I should have known that Take Care was just going to be something completely different because Marvin's Room is just one of those ones. So when I saw that it was coming up to its 10-year anniversary, I just had to talk about it because what a record, what an album, and I think I'm probably one of those Drake fans that are still chasing that feeling that Marvin's Room and Take Care gave us on Drake's latest works, and I think we kind of just got to let that go at this point. So I know I'm a little bit late on this, at least for the podcast standpoint, but Apple Music introduced what's called Spatial Audio and Dolby Lossless Audio exclusively on their platform. And for those of you who don't know what Spatial Audio is, it's pretty much this feature where you're listening through your AirPods, whatever earphones you're listening to, and instead of the music coming from one side, it's coming from all sides. Um, the lossless audio provides you with, so let me backtrack. So lossless audio pretty much makes it so that any music or any quality in production that you lose when a file is being compressed, you don't lose that anymore. You hear everything from strings that are buried under really heavy production that you may not have noticed before, from background vocals that you may have not noticed. Lossless audio is pretty much what it, what the word is. It's you're not losing any bit of the audio. You're hearing the music on all sides of your head. Even if you turn your head, no matter what direction you turn your head, you're still hearing the music. So it's this really cool feature that I'm jealous of because Spotify does not have it yet. I do have the feature on my actual AirPods, but it doesn't work unless whatever audio I'm listening to is compatible with spatial audio. I think my dad told me that, what was it? Amazon Music or some other streaming service that pretty much announced a feature that was similar to that. I see Spotify and Tidal eventually catching up and kind of creating their own deals to to have this program because a lot of people had admitted that, hey, I'm moving Spotify to get this, this feature on Apple Music. And I haven't gotten to hear it yet, but I can only imagine how good this quality is. And as someone who is an audio junkie, I am so jealous that Apple Music got it. But I'm so happy it exists because now it'll force, like I said, other streaming services to catch up and do something like that. Because as someone who really appreciates audio and music and and music production, to be able to have a feature like that where none of this music is lost at all, I can hear everything the way that the artist intended when they created it, it's going to be beautiful. And as someone who has created music and and produced music, it's very frustrating when you put all of these little bells and whistles into your production and they get lost by the time you compress it and it's distributed. So the fact that now these artists don't have to deal with that anymore is a great thing. I do anticipate as this feature becomes more um, popular on other streaming services and it becomes a worldwide thing, that a lot of artists are gonna have to go back and remaster, even if they've only put out their album a year ago, remaster a lot of their music because I've already heard complaints from certain people saying, man, this spatial audio feature, this lossless audio feature really messed up this album. I think I saw a lot of people complain about Logic's album, No Pressure, saying, oh, this feature, you can really hear how badly this album was mixed because his vocal sounds so low and the beat sounds so loud so I anticipate a lot of artists are probably going to go back in and remaster 
their music so that when people are listening to it through spatial audio, it's not going to sound crazy. But I'm just jealous because I know albums like After Hours and albums like Positions and Beyonce's Lemonade album, there are certain albums from certain artists where you know they put their all into every aspect of it that are going to sound absolutely beautiful with this feature. I know a lot of people are already talking about how great After Hours and Positions sounded, you know, especially Ariana. She's one of those artists where she does so many things with her vocals. Like if you've ever watched, I think she did one for Positions where she took you on the behind the scenes of how that record was created and she was adding all of these these um, different vocals and background vocals and harmonies to her voice and it gets lost and you can't really hear it unless you're really looking for it or you know it's there. So with this feature, you can hear all of that. So Spotify, I'm talking directly to you. Get your shit together. Get some kind of feature that's as good as this Apple Music one because I want to... I want to reap the benefits of this feature. It sounds really, really dope. So I wanted to get into this whole T-Pain and Usher thing because that's all anybody's been talking about yesterday. So apparently Netflix has this new special. I forgot what it's called. I think there's an episode with T-Pain and he talked about going through a deep depression for four years after Usher allegedly came up to him on a plane and told him, hey man, you know, the auto-tune thing that you're doing, you're really fucking it up for real singers. And he felt really bad about himself. Anytime someone, especially a legend like Usher, is telling you, hey, you fucked up music, that's gotta be a, a hurtful feeling to experience. My feelings would be really, really hurt. I probably would have went into a deep depression as well. So after, you know, this went viral, people were kind of giving their opinions on whether they agreed with Usher or not. Now, this is my thing. Usher was a real dick for saying that the way he did. Apparently, he even woke T-Pain out of his sleep on the plane to say this. That was a really fucked up thing to say. It was. But Usher wasn't the only one who expressed these sentiments. I mean, Jay-Z had a whole song called Death of Autotune. This is my opinion. I've always given T-Pain his flowers. He's one of my favorite artists. I think he's inspired so many different artists today, whether they acknowledge it or not, from Travis Scott to Future. I think he's incredible. I think he, during his run, he created a lot of important music, a lot of great music, that a lot of timeless music. This is my thing. This is, this is my standpoint. A lot of people after T-Pain Blue started running with the auto-tune sound, and they ran it into the ground. There were certain artists who were using auto-tune who didn't need to be using it. I'm looking at Lil Wayne, okay? He really ran that shit into the ground. He sounded god-awful using auto-tune. And a lot of people were using auto-tune to conceal the fact that they couldn't sing. Now, auto-tune still exists today. Every artist, whether it's Beyonce, Ariana, Rihanna, no matter how good of a singer you are, singers always put some kind of effect on the vocals. Sometimes it just, it helps you sound better, whether you can sing or not. T-Pain can actually sing. Heard him sing without the auto-tune, he can actually sing. So auto-tune was just kind of like an accessory for him. He liked the way it sounded. It made his music dope. I wouldn't say T-Pain, Ruin music, and I wouldn't even say ruin. I would just say that auto-tune got ran into the ground. I think it didn't help that he was so generous with working with other artists and allowing them to use his sound. A lot of those artists, they ran auto-tune into the ground. Lil Wayne creating the trash that he did while using auto-tune ruined music. And bringing it to rap, I still don't think is a great idea. I think Travis Scott pulls it off pretty well. Future always sounds like he's drowning in the audio to me. Right? But it's something that really singers should be using and not rappers. I don't think it's fair to critique T-Pain for that. I don't think it's fair to say that he ruined music. I don't think so. I think there are a lot of artists who had no business using auto-tune that 
could be at fault. I also think people like Jay-Z were a little bitter about it. You know, I think that Jay-Z, he probably didn't like the way autotune sounded. To him, it wasn't real rap, and he probably couldn't pull it off himself. He was a little bitter. He was a hater. He made what he made about autotune. People were still going to use it. People still use it today. Whatever. But I don't think Usher's comment was particularly nice, and even though I can see it from both sides, he probably shouldn't have gone up to him on that plane and told him he was ruining music. I believe Usher has used autotune. I maybe OMG, but that may have been because of Will I Am. Now Will I Am was another artist that ruined autotune. He ran that into the ground. He sounded awful. Even though there are some songs that I like where he used it in, he was not the best. He did not make the best use out of autotune. And like most trends in music, it eventually phased out. It's no different than mumble rap. I'm pretty sure a lot of us, myself included, I'm actually going to get into their album in a little bit, feel like the Migos ruined music. That's what I feel. I feel that they, they brought mumble rap into popularity. It's nonsense music to me. And a lot of rappers have been inspired by the Migos and they run with that sound. And thank God mumble rap is starting to die out. Thank the fuck. <laughs> thank God. But that's how I feel about the Migos. And some people may think I'm a hater. Or they may say that it's not fair to, to credit the Migos for that. But I do. And I think they did. And so some people feel that way about T-Pain. They're entitled to their opinions. Usher's entitled to his. It was rude. Should he probably apologize to him for phrasing it that way? Maybe. Not apologize for his opinion particularly if that's how he feels. I wish somebody would tell me I should apologize to the Migos. I wouldn't. But there's a way to say things and maybe telling him that he ruined music or he fucked it up for real singers, probably not the, the nicest way to say it. But I think he's entitled to his opinion. That's how he feels. And I think that discrediting how T-Pain feels, because a lot of people were like, oh, you know, every few years T-Pain always comes out with some sob story about what's artists, what some artist said to him that hurt his feelings. T-Pain's entitled to feel how he feels. That's His feelings are valid. And I don't think it's right to tell someone that they're overreacting or to get over it. This man admitted that it sent him into a spiral. He was severely depressed for four years, and that explains a little bit of his absence for a while. You know, but I, I think that a lot of people don't give T-Pain his flowers because T-Pain really did shift and impact the culture. You know, music sounded one way before T-Pain came in, and then it changed. So T-Pain really does deserve his flowers. He deserves his respect. And not everybody's going to have the same opinions as I do. Not everybody's going to think that T-Pain that is deserving of his flowers, whatever. It's a matter of opinion. But I also think that it's also not fair to just write off his feelings either. Because then, you know, if something really bad happened where he decided that he no longer wanted to exist because he felt so bad about these things and, and, and God forbid he took his own life, we'd be saying something completely different. We'd be singing a different tune. We'd say, oh, what? I wish he knew how appreciated he was. You know, I, I wish he knew how much we loved him. It's so important to make sure that you, even past a celebrity standpoint, it's so important to make sure that the people in your life, their feelings, their opinions are validated because I I think that's the worst feeling ever when, and when someone doesn't take how I feel seriously and they write off my emotions. I never want to make somebody else feel that way. And when you're a celebrity, that feeling is probably like magnified. So I am that glad that T-Pain has been opening up a little more and has been like 
expressing his feelings and if he's been dealing with depression he's probably been in therapy and this is probably therapeutic for him it's probably a way for him to move forward he just told a story about Nicki Minaj not that long ago and she apologized to him and I'm pretty sure that gave him something so that he could move forward from that so people should be allowed to talk about their feelings and talk about their experiences T-Pain doesn't do it a whole whole lot so I am glad he's been able to do that I'm glad he's putting out music that song with Kehlani is a smash so I do hope that he is in a better mind space now when he can just continue to put out great music. T-Pain, we love you. I've been a fan of yours since I was a kid. So I'm always going to give him his flowers. I'm always going to appreciate his music. And when he drops his next project, if he has plans to drop a new project, I will be tuned in. So now I wanted to get into the new releases from last week and the week prior. I'm going to start it off with Megan Thee Stallion. She released her new song, That Shit, last week. And before I get into the song, I noticed on Spotify that the song isn't listed under 1501, just 300 Entertainment. So I wonder if Meg is out of her deal with 1501. I can't imagine how that isn't bigger news, but maybe it was just something that was done quietly. It's not a complete shock to me, though. Megan was able to channel Tina Snow for this record. She gives you playful bars and proves she's still a spitter. And though her skills are undeniable, that shit proves that sonically and theme-wise, Megan isn't attempt attempting anything new. The beat is just recycled versions of her old song she's already put out. I was hoping that Meg returning to Tino Tina Snow would inspire her to do something new, but it's the same typical record from her. The hook is annoyingly and mind-numbingly repetitive, but hey... It'll work for her like it always does, and it'll hit on TikTok and inspire several challenges, I'm sure. I've already seen a lot of people dancing to it and, and creating little challenges for it on TikTok, so I wasn't wrong. What really saves the song is her verses, because like I said, her bars are dope, and the way she rides the beat is fire too. I'm not one of those people that are like, oh, I wish Megan would stop talking about sex and talking about this, and that's not really my problem with Megan. Because like I said, I've said this before, I'll say it again. Not every artist needs to give you overly conscious music. Not every artist is capable of providing you depth. I do think Megan is capable, but she just doesn't want to. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. My real problem is that the beats start to sound the same. I really do want her to work with different producers because I think his name is Lil Juju or, or whatever. He provides the same beat over and over and over again, and it kind of forces Megan to kind of stay in the same lane. And that was her problem with Good News, where a lot of the beats were the same. They didn't sound much different from each other. There were beats that I've heard from other producers where I'm like, man, if Megan was on this, she would go crazy because Megan has a real, real skill. Her pen is powerful. So I just want to see her try something different. It, she doesn't necessarily have to talk about deeper things or talk about what's going on in the world if she doesn't want to. There are other artists I can listen to that are going to provide me with that, whatever. But I do want her to change it up because she's gotten stale. But all of that aside, that shit is still enjoyable. I let it run in the carts, fun record. When outside opens back up, it'll go crazy in the club. I'll have fun with that. But you know, what I also said before still stands. My favorite lines from the track are, quote, I don't give a fuck about a blog trying to bash me. I'm the shit per the Recording Academy. And I just like hearing her be cocky and flex. That I like that line. I fuck with that line. I also like, quote, Bitch dry hating, trying to get notice. Man, ain't nobody coming to see you, Otis. Look, how many bitches lying if they say they bars is better? They're really puppets, so I really gotta go in Geppetto. I'm really talking, but it really can apply to whoever. My pen a freak, it'll go after a bitch or a nigga. Just because I like her flow 
during that part of the line she was like spazzing that's why i said the verses the hook is in but the the verses are fire like she was really spitting and i also like the reference to the temptations movie where she was like ain't nobody coming to see you otis a lot of her music videos have a lot of um parallels to actual movies and like a lot of cinematic parallels which i enjoy people pointing it out because sometimes i miss them and sometimes i catch them and there are often cinematic parallels in her actual lyrics too so it's fun looking them up and, and trying to catch the meaning myself but also learning like that's learning about what they are because i'll go on genius and, and they'll say oh because she watches a lot of anime i don't watch anime so i'll go on genius and i'll say oh this is a reference to this anime show and this is what she means and it's always really really clever she's a really good writer Moving on from Megan, I wanted to talk about Doja Cat's new single, Need to Know. I'm not crazy about the song. It honestly just sounds like Doja got in the booth and said whatever came to her mind and slapped the song together. Once the actual album comes out, I'm pretty sure it'll be one of the weaker tracks on it. But this song is just a buzz single, so I'm assuming she didn't give any of the stronger tracks away so soon, which is always a smart idea. You always put out a strong lead single. She did that with Kiss Me More. And then you're, if you don't put out any other singles before the album, when you put out the bus single, it's just one of the songs where it's like, okay, this isn't like a, a song that's so good that I feel like I'm giving away too much before my album. You always want to leave the audience with more once the album actually comes out. There's nothing worse than when an artist puts out all of their good songs as singles and then the rest of the album is lackluster. I will say the second verse of the song is dope though, and it's the only good part about the song because she's actually rapping. My favorite lines from this are, quote, Oh wait, you a fan of the magic? Poof, pussy like Alakazam. I heard from a friend of a friend that that dick was a 10 out of 10. Her new album drops June 25th. It's June 25th is already shaping up to be a big, big release day. Everybody seems to have decided that they wanted to come out June 25th. So I'm already prepping myself to be listening to a whole bunch of music. I'm probably going to start prepping for my podcast next week super early because I have a lot of albums to get through and to review. So, and it, it, I may not even be able to get through it all before Tuesday because I like to really try to sit with albums as much as I can before reviewing them. You may get an episode on Wednesday or Thursday, but I just know that there's going to be a lot of music to listen to. And I'm pretty sure there are singles that are going to be announced this week as well. That, that are going to be coming out for June 25th. And that makes sense for why June 18th was so slow. Other than her, nobody really dropped. So that makes sense because everybody's coming June 25th. I know Saweetie was supposed to come June 25th. But um, one of her fans on Twitter said that they heard that she may have delayed it until July. The rollout for that album was really, really weird. She started off strong. She had a, a hit single with Doja Cat. She had a good single with Janae. And then all of a sudden... I heard nothing else about Pretty Bitch Music, and then she put out some project in between. So I have no idea what's going on. I don't play, pay a whole bunch of attention to Saweetie anyway, but I haven't heard a whole lot of blogs and articles talking about this album, so I'm assuming she actually did delay it, which is probably smart for her, because between Doja and Tyler, the creator, there's no way Saweetie would have had a successful first week numbers competing with them. So it's probably a better idea for her to drop next month instead. Speaking of her, I wanted to get into her Back of My Mind album. So her debut album does a good job of establishing her as her own artist. Though you can still hear her influences from Lauryn Hill to Erykah Badu throughout the album, 
she shines more with her own unique sound. This album is filled with lively and beautiful production, and most of the standout parts on this album, aside from hers vocals, is the guitar, which she plays extremely well, and I feel like out of all of the bodies of work she's put out so far, you hear more guitar in this and then production in these songs than you ever have before. I know she plays it a lot more seemingly, and so I think a guitar will highlight a song beautifully, so I loved hearing it. I will say, despite her explaining the meaning behind the album, it does come up empty once you actually listen. By the time I finish the album, I still can't tell you what the true theme of it is or what the message is. At most, back of my mind sounds like pages out of her diary, like random musings out of her diary, but I feel like there are rarely any vulnerable moments or songs that I feel like I'm really getting to know her more on. On Trauma and Exhausted, we hear hints of it, but nothing further than that. And I feel like when you name an album back of my mind, you probably should do more of that, but you know, whatever. I like a good half of the album, but I do think it could have been trimmed down a lot. Towards the end of the album, I'd say that the final five songs are all very slow, so the album tends to drag by that point. There are certain songs that didn't need to make the cut. For example, I Can Have It All, Slide, Find A Way. They just sound extremely out of place, and frankly, I Can Have It All wasn't a good enough track to make this album. Songs like Comfortable or Sometimes were more deserving of those spots. I know I said I didn't want her to put a whole bunch of the Lucy she's released within the past couple of years on the album, but a lot of those Lucy's were better than some of the tracks on Back of My Mind, so now I'm kind of like, I'm, I kind of regret saying that. Her spent the past two years putting out great Lucy's and features, and on some tracks like Do To Me, Slow Down, Smile, she experimented with new sounds from Afrobeats to reggae music, and it was a good sound for her and suited her voice beautifully. I was hoping that she would bring that to her album, but there is next to no experimentation on Back of My Mind. The closest she gets is on Find A Way, in which she leans too much on Little Baby Sound, and it really seemed like the sole purpose of that record was to just get him on it. It really sounded like a little baby record featuring her. She sounded very out of place. It didn't work. And she also experimented on Bloody Waters, where she taps into Katronda and Thundercat sound. But it works because it still sounds like something she'd do, but it also sounds like something a little different. The top tracks on Back of My Mind are Damage, which I already talked about extensively last year. It's one of... I think it's her best track ever. I don't see her surpassing Damage. It's so good. So Damage, Trauma, Bloody Waters, Cheat Code, and Process. So I'm going to start it off with Trauma, which features Corday. What really drew me to this song is the message. She's talking about the things that trigger her, and though we don't have the same triggers, it makes the song more relatable and human to know, oh, you know, I'm not the only one who has these exhausting triggers that are hard to navigate through sometimes. I also love that Hip Boy tailored a beat that's fitting for her, but also has some hip hop elements, you know, especially the drums, it gives it some real bounce. And Corday sounds right at home on it. His verses are so poetic and right on par with her's message. Someone did point out on Twitter that he sounded like Nas on this track, and they're right, I hear that. This song really gives me If I Ruled the World vibes, which again is not a shock because you can hear that Lauryn Hill is a major inspiration for her, and I'm pretty sure Nas is probably an influence on Corday as well. You can tell by his rap style. I think if I could compare him to two rappers, or maybe three, it would be Cole, 
it would be Nas and it would be Tupac. He really gives me that vibe. My favorite lines from Trauma are, quote, Why overthink? Think I need a drink. I just need to chill. Maybe I need a shrink. One, because it's real and relatable. And two, I like the rhyme scheme on those lines. And the next line I really like, too, is, quote, Why do I live in the past only? Worried about where they at when I don't know where I'm going. Which I think it's not only a problem that I face, but I think that's a problem a lot of us face where we're so focused on the past at times that it prevents us from looking into the future and, and sometimes getting better because you can't get better if you're continuing to worry about what happened in the past because it's something that you can't change. So you might as well move forward. So that line really stuck out to me because it's real. The next track I wanted to talk about is a song called Bloody Waters, which features Thundercat. Bloody Waters is a song about racism and how it feels like the world isn't really changing and how allies don't really have our backs the way they proclaim to and just navigating as a black person through all of that. Her's vocals really drive the track to me because you can hear the passion in her voice and it's almost like she's talking to you directly. It's kind of like conversational. It's one of the few tracks where you can actually take a peek into her mind, which ties into the title. The production sounds very 60s or 70s inspired, and the drums sound like the kind you hear in African music. The drums coupled with the heavenly bass give the song a very live sound, and the bass is to die for. I don't know who played the bass on this song, but they did phenomenal. My favorite lines from Bloody Waters are, quote, Watch your back, save me mine, under attack, spiritual kind. Where you stand, you decide, destiny doesn't roll the dice. The next song I want to talk about off of the album is Cheat Code. Now, if Lauryn Hill was still making music today, Cheat Code sounds exactly like a song that would be perfect for her. It's straight out of her handbook. From the melodies and harmonies to the acoustic and rhythmic production, you can hear the inspiration. I also love when the horns come in towards the end of the song. They're just beautiful. I really do love this track. Through and through, there's nothing much to really add. It's just a really, really good song. If I recommend any song on this album, Cheat Code is definitely one of them. It's it's so good. I already know I'm going to be running that song into the ground. My favorite lines are, quote, How do you sleep? Where do you leave? You learn the Cheat Code. I'm on the seafloor. The last song I want to talk about off of the album is a song called Process. I mainly think this song is so good because of her vocals. She just sounds really good. She skates through the beat effortlessly. It's like she owns it. I also love her cadence in the chorus. It's like she's rap singing, but she pulls it off well and pulls it off much better on this song than she did on the record with Little Baby. I also love the higher pitch she sings in during the verses and her tone is to die for. It just gives the song more color. My favorite lines from Process are, quote, I got some things that I gotta get off my chest Screaming through the phone like we trying to have a contest. All your old ways keep on slowing up the progress. Got me losing nights. Guess I'm going through the process. Back of my mind is filled with beautiful production and heavenly vocals. And I think the album as a whole did a great job of proving that her is here to stay. But it suffered from fillers and lack of daring material. Or at least music that showcased major growth for her. I do think this album, if you didn't take to it right away like me, where I was kind of like, okay, I enjoyed some songs, but eh, that it takes a few listens. You have to really sit with this album. I do anticipate it aging really, really good throughout the years. 
But I do think that the album would have been better if she had cut down a lot of the tracks. It, it didn't need to be 21 songs at all. But I, I anticipate her having a very long and successful career. I think it's incredible seeing what she's been able to do within four years. So I can only imagine that it's up from here for her. But I do recommend Back of My Mind to listen to because there are a lot of really good R&B tracks on the album. Moving on from her, French Montana released a new song recently. It's called Fuck With Me and Get a Bag, I believe. And I think the song is basic as hell. It sounds like a half-assed attempt at having a summer banger, but even the sample can't make that happen for this track. In 2016 or maybe 2017, the song could have been passable, but in 2021, it's just overdone and typical. And I think this song came out a couple of weeks ago. I haven't heard anything about the song since. I don't know if they're playing it on the radio. It'll probably just come and go. I think French Montana has hit his peak with Unforgettable with Sway Lee. And that song he had with Fat Joe and um, Remy Ma all the way up. I, I can't anticipate him having a, another hit track, at least on his own. Young Blue also released a new single with Chris Brown and 2 Chains. It's called Baddest. And if there's one thing producers do these days, it's overuse an SWV sample. Because they know it works. This is what I think makes Hip Maker a lazy producer. He uses a sample but doesn't attempt to really change anything up and allows the sample to carry the song. If anything, he probably just changes the drums to make it more modern. He doesn't really do anything else that's different. However, it works for the song. It gives it a timeless and authentic sound. Chris Brown provides a smooth and sexy hook. And if there's one thing Chris can do, it's elevate most tracks he's on. Two Chains is a nice addition to the track too. If not for the beat in Chris's hook, Baddest would have been another basic vibe and beat type of song to me. But like I said, it just so happens to work again. But it's not always going to continue to work for Hitmaker or, you know, the artists that rely on, on his type of production. Tyler Creator also released a new song called Lumberjack. I haven't listened to Tyler in years and I was never a huge, huge fan like some of my friends were. And I didn't care for the music I heard on Igor. But one thing I really appreciate about Tyler is that each album is something different. He's truly an artist that you can't put in a box. No matter what you think or say about him, he can rap. And he proves that on Lumberjack. The production is gritty and dark. It actually really reminded me of RZA's production for Wu-Tang. And then, like, after I had that thought, maybe a few days later as I was on Genius and I was listening to the song and, and reading the lyrics and really trying to you know, engage with the song, I found out that this track samples Two Cups of Blood by the Gravediggers. And, you know, that's when it made sense to me because apparently RZA is in that group. And it made complete sense for why when I heard Lumberjack, it reminded me of a Wu-Tang beat. It reminded me of a Wu-Tang song. Tyler is just rapping for real. And if this is the taste of what he's got coming, then I think I'll definitely tune into this album for sure. His new album, Call Me If You Get Lost, is dropping June 25th. And like I said, I have my hands full with new music this week. So I'm definitely going to be checking into Tyler's album. He just released another new single, but I didn't have time to listen to it before I got on the mic. But I believe I hear Tyler Dollar Sign in the background. It's a real, you know, groovy R&B beat. I, from what I heard of, because the video was only like a minute long that he posted on Twitter, but from that, I really like the song. So I, I think I may fuck with this new Tyler album. 
So to nobody's surprise, Logic announced last week that he was breaking out of his retirement with a new song. The song is called Intro, which is probably just the intro of whatever album he's got coming. This song proves what most people already know, which is that Logic can rap, despite what you know Joe Budden and Charlamagne think. The man can rap, and, and anybody who says differently is capping for real. He's not really telling us anything new on this track, but Logic tends to tell us the same stories over and over again, so that's not a shock. It's also a criticism that he faces a lot. This track isn't some super crazy comeback record, and I don't think it really needs to be considering he hasn't even been retired for a full year, which is why when artists say, I'm retiring, I don't believe them because it never lasts. The beat is simple, but it's cool. It's a cool vibe. For this upcoming album, though, I would like to hear Logic work with some different producers. Six is talented, but Logic could use some experimentation in his music because he's kind of starting to to get in that rut. No Pressure was a really, really good album, but even with No Pressure, I was like, I'd really like to hear Logic work with some new producers. On this very, very long list of new releases, Wale is another artist that released a new song called Angles, which features Chris Brown. This track is another hit maker, overly sampled, produced record. This time, the sample is I Need a Girl, part one. Wale's verses are half-assed and nothing special, and Chris's hook is basic. I probably won't return to it, I'm not gonna hold you. This song will do its job and give Wale a steady radio record for the summer, maybe, which is probably what his intentions were. Snow Allegra released a lead single for her upcoming album that drops next month. It's called Lost You. This track is Snow doing what she does best, which is providing beautiful and soulful breakup tracks or songs about heartbreak in general. I don't think this album will be much different. I really, really loved her last album. Ugh, these feels, in, feels again, I believe. I almost said feelings, but it's feels. I really loved her last album, so I can't wait for new music from her. And, you know, it, it probably won't really be that much different in theme. But I'm sure the music will still be good, so I don't care. So the Migos are last on my list. They dropped their new album, Culture 3. Two weeks ago, I believe, at this point. Not doing a, an episode for a week will throw me off because her technically was last Friday. So yeah, they released Culture 3 two weeks ago. And if I'm being honest, the album was a chore to listen to. I think Amigos' album should never be more than 13 tracks, especially with the kind of music they create. So not only was this album really long, but it's a long album filled with nonsense lyrics, beats that don't sound much different from each other, and songs that don't make you feel anything, so like I said before, it was a real chore. Music doesn't always have to be conscious, it can just be fun, and let's be honest, this is the Migos I'm talking about, so I wasn't expecting something deep, but at least put out good or enjoyable music, and I felt like this album had none of the above. The Migos have not evolved in the slightest since at least the first culture, and even though I was never a big fan of them, it seems like most Migos fans agree. To me, Culture 2 and 3 are just as bad as each other. I saw some debates on the timeline about, oh, Culture 2, Culture 3 wasn't as bad as Culture 2. To me, they're equivalent of each other. They're equally as bad. I thought I might like the Drake feature on Having Our Way, but the beat is basic and Drake raps with the flow that I hate from him and it's the same flow he's been using since last year. It's just so damn basic and his lyrics are pretty predictable, so I ended up not liking that track. I can't even mention flow or lyrics when it comes to critiquing them because they use the same monotone mumble flow on every track and they never say anything interesting 
or things that even make sense to me. However, Cardi had one of the best verses on this entire album. Her verse on type shit is so hard and I wish it was her record because I would have saved it, but her verse wasn't enough for me to keep the whole song. I love several lines from her verse, but in particular, these stick out to me the most. Quote, my accountant think I'm gay. All I do is buy shit. From the projects to the private jets, I've been a fly bitch. Just cause it's clever. And also quote, feel like Yancey with this Birkin, but I'm rolling with this Kelly. Again, I thought that was clever. I thought it was cute too. I, it got a chuckle out of me. I really didn't care for this album, but there were a few songs that caught my attention and, and the songs I actually saved. These songs are Avalanche, Vaccine, Roadrunner, and Need It. So I'm going to start off by talking about Avalanche, which I believe is the first track on Culture 3. I like the song mostly because of the beat. It has a real 70s vibe to it, which is due to the sample. And the sample is Papa was a Rolling Stone, so there you go. I really love the horns in the production because it gives the song high energy, which matches the Migos vibe. You know, they're very fun, they're very upbeat and stuff like that, so... You know, that works for them. I also like their verses. They each rode the beat well. I think out of the three of them, Offset had the better verse on this track. The next song is Vaccine. And honestly, I thought this song would have been corny because of the title. But I love the melody and the hook here. The core of the beat sounds familiar to me, but I can't place it. It sounds like a flute, but it's hard. The melody of the flute is super dope. My favorite lines from Vaccine are, quote, We making money in quarantine... Dirty my stick and my whip clean. It's the Blue Benjamins vaccine. Again, I love the melody here. The next song I want to talk about is Roadrunner. Most of the time, I like Amigo song because of the beat or the melody. This is the case for this song too. The beat reminds me of like video game music with trap drums and keys added to it, but I think the beat is dope. One thing about them, they always come up with good melodies and ride the beat well, which makes it easy to ignore how idiotic their lyrics actually are. This song is no different. The last song I was going to talk about on Culture 3 is Need It, which features Young Boy Never Broke Again. Buddha Bless is a dope producer. He always provides the artists with good melodies within the beat. And his production always makes you want to dance. And the beat he provided them with for Need It is no different. I also like the back and forth between Young Boy and Offset, and then also Take Off and Quavo in the two verses. They all play off of each other's energies very well. Culture 3 is proof of what we've all been collectively saying, which is that the Migos have hit their peak and are slowly fading out. Unless they come out with something different and start thinking outside of the box creatively, I don't see them having any more longevity. In fact, I won't be surprised if they all officially go solo within the next two years and the Migos disband. Now before the episode ends, I wanted to get into the song of the week, and the song of the week is I Like by T-Pain featuring Kehlani. I know I talked about T-Pain earlier. In the episode, I already had planned on making this the song of the week, but with everything going on between him and Usher and, and, and the social media content, commentary, I'm like, well, I like that as the perfect, even more perfect song to make the song of the week. I've talked about the song on my podcast before, but I really do like the fact that T-Pain was able to take an already classic record of his and transform it into a new, completely new song, which is Hitmaker needs to take you know, um, some tips from T-Pain because that's how you do it. He completely transformed a song that's already beloved by so many fans and made it something completely new for this new generation to, en to enjoy. And he put someone like Kehlani, who is a beloved R&B singer for today's generation on it. 
And T-Pain is not a hard artist to have chemistry with, but him and Kehlani really worked well together on I Like That. So I had to make it the song of the week. It's definitely on my summer playlist. It's such a good track. If you haven't heard it before, please check it out. You won't regret it, especially if you like T-Pain or Kehlani. towards the end of the episode thank you so much for listening to me rant and ramble for over an hour it feels so good to be back and providing you guys with new content i'll make sure that i'm back again next week and and more consistently it's rare whenever i take a week off but i just couldn't find the time to put out a new episode but i am back and better than ever if you enjoyed this episode then please give listen to me speak a five-star rating on apple podcasts or anywhere you can rate podcasts And if you enjoy this podcast and you want to support it further, then please donate to my listener donations on my website, www.listentomespeak.com. And if you want to keep up with me even further, then please follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, even YouTube. Again, the links to my social medias are on my website, www.listentomespeak.com. And like I say every week, be kind to yourselves and thank you for listening to me speak.